Hi, and welcome back to Spike Tape, the podcast about theater and theater education with the people who know it best. I'm your host, Anna Brasowski. If you want to learn more about our podcast and its origins, please check out the preseason introduction episode or visit us at spiketape.net. In the meantime, I am insanely excited for our episode today because I sat down with Wesley Taylor. If you don't know who he is, go ahead and look him up on Google or social media. You'll probably recognize his face. His credits are too long to name in this intro, but you may have seen him on Smash, on Broadway, in Rock of Ages, The Addams Family, or SpongeBob SquarePants, or from one of his critically acclaimed and award-winning web series. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Spike Tape. Thank you so much for joining me on your day off. I know that these two-week rehearsal periods are absolutely insane. (laughs) They are, yeah. Yeah, it seems, I can't even imagine. So I'm going to start with uh, you as a student. Can you tell me things that you were interested in as a student? Did you know that you were destined for a career in the theater? You know, from an early age, I knew that I enjoyed being in front of people. Um, the sound of laughter was sort of a drug to me. Um, if I said something and got a laugh or getting attention uh, was kind of everything for me. So so from an early age, I, I knew that I wanted to perform um, and be in front of people, but mostly that translated to singing and dancing. And um, it wasn't until high school, <clears throat> I went to an arts high school in Orlando, Florida, and we studied a lot of dramatic literature in English class. And my English teacher um, would, you know, I think as most schools, like, you know, you're, you're reading a play, and you sort of divvy out the roles. And my English teacher, we were we were reading Othello, and she was uh, she was saying, you know, no one is allowed to read the role of Iago except for her. She that was her that was her part that she owned, and no one was allowed to read that part. Um, and 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 she sort of read this character with such delicious intensity i was just draw magnetized to it and i couldn't stop watching her and in that moment i sort of fell in love with acting and the ability for someone to transform in that way um and draw me in um and i you know i had been singing and dancing and performing for a lot of my childhood um but this was sort of the the turning point um I guess I was, I don't know, 15 years old or something when I was like, no, I, I want to be an actor and I want to study uh, and be the best actor I can be. So it was really um, Mrs. Poro <laughs> in high school who really lit that fire. Um, do you have a first thing that you ever saw, either movie or, um, or live theater that made you know you wanted to perform or have a life in the theater? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, one of the first shows... I saw that came into town on a national tour was the Who's Tommy. Are you serious? Uh, yes. Wow. Um, which I'm, I'm now doing at the Kennedy Center. And, and I remember when I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably nine, ten, um, maybe, maybe even younger. Um, and I went with my, with my mom to the, to the touring production and she sort of 
<laughs> covered my eyes the whole time, you know, during all the salacious stuff. And because it is uh, not appropriate for young children. Yeah. No, no, no. And I don't think she realized that. Yeah. And uh, so I'm like trying to, you know, get as much as I can peeking through her fingers. Uh, of the wow. Show. What a coincidence. Yeah, right. Um, so you went to the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. What made you want to go to a conservatory instead of like a liberal arts school or something in that realm? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was, uh, I was pretty mathematically challenged. I was having trouble in high school. Um, I, was, I always soared at history and English and, and these kind of courses. But, but in terms of the math and the science and, and all of that part of my brain, I was very challenged, and <laughs> I, I, I bribed my teachers uh, with tickets to my shows in high school. I mean, like I, I tutored every single lunch hour with my math teacher junior year with algebra two. I uh, so I had great grades, but not you know not from a lack of like working incredibly hard um, to have that GPA, and um, I sort of realized in my junior senior year when I'm starting to look at schools that a conservatory lifestyle is is really suited for me um in the sense that I am a very myopic person and I uh I've been doing sort of one thing um for my whole life and you know that can be ridiculed by some people that I wasn't well grounded in in enough things like my sister was in track and field and chorus and dance and cheerleading and government and all the things. So she was a very attractive, well-rounded applicant to schools and such, but that wasn't me. Um, I knew that if I focused on one solitary goal my whole life, I could excel at that one thing. Um, and this is not for everyone, of course, but, but for me, I knew personally that a a conservatory was the way to go. And so, um, you know, and even within a conservatory, you're still taking a couple academics a year to get your bachelor of fine arts or whatnot. Um, but I, I I sort of wanted to, to go to a school where the academic choices that you have are still artistically based classes. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you think it's helped you? Um, I'm not going to say that I wasn't talented before UNCSA. I, I, I had an instrument that was full of skills and experience, I suppose. But UNCSA sort of shaped the artist I would become in the sense that it solidified a way of working and um, sort of crafted my own technique. You, you sort of – you go to school – and for the first you know year or so, it's pretty self-conscious as they're sort of uh, trying to get you out of all of these habits and sort of self-indulgent things that you've been doing in high school and, and in your performance arena. Um, and they're really sort of starting from the beginning. And, um, and then throughout the four years, you're, you're accumulating so many tools and tricks not tricks, well, I guess tricks, technical tricks, but also incredibly important tools and, and they're making you a smarter actor. Um, at the end of the four years, you can sort of pick and choose what you respond to and what resonates with you 
personally that's going to help, I don't know, solidify the artist you're going to become. It's also incredibly important to, in terms of networking. <laughs> I will just right. say from a business standpoint, um, going to a school like North Carolina School of the Arts is incredibly beneficial in terms of a, a, a wide-ranging network of artists when you move to New York or L.A. that you can collaborate with. And also, it's just one of the schools that does the, the showcase, the presentation, the consortium for, for the industry, um, in which they all sort of go and scout the rising seniors um, that are coming into the workforce. So you graduated from UNCSA in 2008, and you starred in Rock of Ages Off-Broadway, which eventually transferred to Broadway in 2008. How long after you got out of school were you cast in Rock of Ages? Uh, it was a couple of months. Um, How, it was... what, what was that like? <laughs> well, I was doing a couple regional gigs. I graduated and I did like, you know, a, a little stint at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Festival. I did a stint at Barrington Stage, this show called Sea Rock City. Uh, I, I was, you know, bouncing around a little bit regionally and auditioning for things in New York. And there was this off-Broadway show called Rock of Ages that that I was looking at and I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to book this. He's a German boy, blonde hair, blue eyes, German boy, you know? Yeah. So I didn't think much of it. And I had just been cast as Sonny in the national tour of Greece. So I was going to go do that. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do off Broadway. I was just like, no, it's like, I, I think this show will probably open and close because it's pretty low brow and the critics are going to hate it. So I'll just go, you know, save a bunch of money on the road for a year. And my reps were like, even if it closes in a week, you'll have been seen by more people in this industry than in your entire year on tour. So we want you to stay in New York and, and, and do the show. And so I did. And <laughs> such a good decision, obviously. Yeah. Because it transferred to Broadway and, and, you know, eventually ran for six years. But yeah. That must have been insane. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to transition a little bit to work that you've created yourself. And this is just something that I'm curious about. So you've created or produced two successful and award-winning web series. And you've also been on TV and Broadway in Smash and Rock of Ages and SpongeBob and all that stuff. So for you, what's the difference between inhabiting a character that was written by someone else versus inhabiting a character that was written by you? Hmm. Good question. Both are unique challenges in their own right. But I will say there is, there's, there's not much that, that can be more rewarding for me than my own stories. Um, the authenticity that comes from getting to see something come to life that was in my head first is especially, you know, surrounded by talented actors that are, that are bringing to life. What I wrote is, is I don't know anything that's more satisfying than that. Not to say that it's not a great and wonderful challenge to, to have to breathe life into someone else's work. And that's the majority of what I do in my career. Right. But when I'm recognized on the street, for indoor boys, or it could be worse, or Billy Green, over my acting career, it's, I don't know, it's so much more meaningful. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can understand that. Yeah. What's it like casting people for roles that you create in your mind? It's such a joy. Um, and it's, it's also a joy to 
be able to collaborate with talented friends that, you know, that I look up to and, and respect and admire. You know, I've got such a talent pool in my phone, in my phone contacts, you know, yeah. of people that I, I love and idolize. And, and uh, if, they're ga- if they're game, if they're willing to play, um, usually for not a lot of money at all, it's just, I don't know, it's the best to, to just be able to collaborate with, with all of your friends. We don't audition anyone, you know, we're just offering it to, to people we love. Yeah, that's, ugh, that's such a, like, it's such a unique experience. Yeah. So turning back to like a, your more general career, what's been the biggest um, setback or challenging time? Huh. Well, um, one thing that is prevalent in the world of creating new theater, which I've been very fortunate and lucky to have done for most of my career post drama school. Um, you know, I can, there's only a couple revivals I've done. Um, most of the theater I've done has been new work, which is lucky, but also, um, is <laughs> pretty challenging because the world of new theater, um, is about development that can span readings, workshops, labs, concerts, uh, out of town tryouts. And then, you know, eventually everyone's goal to make a commercial profit is Broadway. Right. And I have been replaced and fired from many projects that I was attached to for sometimes several years. And that, you know, everyone always talks about the rejection that comes with auditioning, um, which is, you know, if you, if you can't stomach that, you got to get out of the business because it's, you know, it's a recurring situation that you're going to be rejected constantly. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, I think something that's even more challenging than, than the daily grind of rejection is rejection from stuff that you have already worked on right. <laughs> um, and, and have already helped create and develop for other creative people. Um, and then they, they get rid of you and say it's not personal, <laughs> but of, of course it feels incredibly personal and, and heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, so that happened to me enough times to be like truly burned by it all. And, um, and sometimes it's driven me to LA actually, because I've been so, I don't know, burnt out by it all. And then I go to LA and do, you know, work a little bit and then something brings me back to New York usually because New York is home for me, but but I do love working in LA and I would say the most challenging parts of this career for me are, are, you know, the droughts of time when you're not working, which happens to every actor at some point in their life, the ebb and flow. And then also, um, financial stability, uh, making sure that you can survive from gig to gig. If you're, if you're sort of in the paycheck to paycheck, uh, lifestyle, which is also very common. Right. There's plenty of challenges, I guess. Yeah. You were living in LA when you created Indoor Boys as a series, right? Yeah. What yes, yes. what drove you to create that? Um, okay, so as a playwright, actually, I was doing the the, the Actors Fund um, were producing short plays of mine in New York. So um, this was a very cool thing. I was writing like a handful of ten minute plays, and they were they were sort of sponsoring these plays. You know, all the funds went to went to the fund 
and we would sort of sell it out as a one night only thing with big fancy names like Nathan Lane and Deborah Messing and Stocker Channing right. and whatnot. So the second year of this, uh, of my, my one acts being read by fancy people, I wrote a play, a 10 minute play called Little Monsters. And it was basically these two homebody gay boys who couldn't leave the apartment, who uh, <laughs> were sort of one-upping each other and sort of social media millennial monsters uh, in the information age uh, with hopefully a little bit of a redemptive twist at the end of the 10 minutes. It was read by Kevin McHale from Glee and Skylar Aston, Pitch Perfect. Yeah. The two of them were Nate and Luke. So... It went off really well. The audience loved it. I was sort of, you know, had that in my back pocket. I was living in LA. In LA I really wanted to do something with Alex Wise because I had, you know, we were sort of in the same circles of friends and I, I, I thought he was hilarious and I wanted to perhaps write something with him or make something with him. And, and so I went over to his apartment one day and I, you know, I said, can you read this, this short play with me? Maybe we could rewrite it and, and shoot it and, and, It'll be a sketch or, or, or perhaps even the pilot of a new web series. What do you think? You know, And so we did just that, and it became the beginning of Indoor Boys. Cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay. In as few sentences as possible, no pressure, why did you choose a career in theater? <laughs> Oof. Um, when I'm on stage, I feel more alive than I do any other time. Um, it's all about that feeling. It's like a drug, and I try to get my fix as often as possible. And it's an endless need for me that won't go away. And there's nothing else I could do that would fulfill me in the same way. Yeah, that works, great. <laughs> Okay, so I know you talked about your teacher earlier, but can you tell me a little bit about other teachers or mentors who have impacted you the most? Yeah, um, he had to step down. He, he suffered a few strokes, but the dean of my drama school, Gerald Friedman, um, was huge, huge mentor in my life. And I, I owe so much of who I am as an actor to that man. Um, it's sort of hard to explain how deep that well goes, but it's, it's undeniable. I mean, he was very old school and tough on me. Um, he picked on me in, an incredible amount um, and made me cry and <laughs> really beat me up in school. But then when all was said and done, was the most meaningful dynamic I ever had in the training. Um, yeah, I hope that's not too general, but that's, that's my answer. No, that's perfect. Um, why do you teach master classes? Oh, I love it. I, not only do I think I'm pretty, pretty damn good at it, but I, I, I love doing it. There's, there's something very satisfying about uh, seeing someone where they're at, giving them critique and coaching them to, to get to a place that is surprising and, uh, and impressive. There are technical ways to do that and there are ways to help them get there emotionally and to sort of guide them as they tap into what connects them to the material. But it's incredibly rewarding to watch um, the transformation of someone's work 
and feel like you had part you had a part of that selfishly. So I love doing it. And I've been doing it a lot with my boyfriend, Isaac, um, lately because, you know, we come from the same training. We both went to UNCSA right. and we speak the same vernacular. Um, and so I also find that we sort of look for the same things when watching um, storytelling. So um, we we have a good shorthand as teachers and, you know, it could be, <laughs> it could definitely be the complete opposite where we, we end up fighting and competing as, as a, you know, actor couple who are trying to get a but it really doesn't work that way. We actually complement each other very well in the, in the, in the, in the work. So, um, yeah. From your perspective, why is it, I, you have, I mean, a background in conservatory obviously, and now you teach. So, um, why is it important to continue arts education and to create more opportunity for it? Well, again, I guess selfishly, like just based on my own experience and, and the, the enrichment I received as an artist going through training, uh, you know, when you're young and you just want to be famous or whatever, <laughs> you just want attention and you're like, I'm going to move to Hollywood and be a big star. And you don't want to take the time to hone your craft and, and be a better artist. You know, it, it's, it's, it's really about the wrong things at that point. And also you're, you're lying to yourself if, if you think that you're, you're telling the truth um, in your art. Um, I guess there are always exceptions like, you know, the Dakota Fannings and the, and the children who find that impeccable truth at a, at a young age. And, and, you know, I look at those people as geniuses uh, who, who maybe don't need training, but, but most of us do. Yeah. Most of us need help uh, looking inside of ourselves and bringing out the best of ourselves out to the surface. So I'm, in a, I'm a huge advocate of training and education. Um, and I'm, I, I just love that you that you're doing this podcast um, with the concentration on theater education and and training and in, in general because I find that to be incredibly important and 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 truthfully you know looking at the landscape of of the people who populate the Broadway shows the companies of Broadway shows nine times out of ten everyone is trained you know that is not the truth in TV right. and film. <laughs> You know, on television, you're going to find plenty of people who were just gorgeous at the right place at the right time and, and whatnot. But in New York City, on the Broadway stage, it is pretty hard pressed to find someone who doesn't have some sort of training because it is a technical feat in addition to the emotional requirements that come to doing something. You, you know, like the, it takes a trained technician to be able to fill the space with your body and hit the back of the of the house with your voice and uh, and deliver that. Yeah, and especially like eight times a week. That's it's it is not for the oh, faint yeah. of heart. Yeah. So I've I've read and seen in other interviews that one of your dream roles is Iago and Othello. Correct. Is that does that stem from from your English teacher in high school? Yes. That is wow, wow full full circle. Very, very full circle. I um, it's more, it's like sort of completing a destiny that started when I was fifteen in in terms of of wanting to become an actor. How? Well, two questions on that. How would you prepare for that role, and do you think you are currently prepared for that role? Um, 
I think spiritually I'm prepared in the sense that I, I I'm the right type, I'm the right energy, um, and at this point I'm 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 the right age um, for the for the role. Um, so I guess I'm saying it in so many interviews because I'm like, I'm not going to be this age for for much longer. You know, I don't want to get too old for you know. Like I think this is the prime age for Iago, early thirties. Yeah, well, I am. I'm trying. But also, you know, no, I'm not ready to jump into it tomorrow because there's an extensive amount of text work um, to do, especially when you're doing classical theater, uh, you know, someone like Shakespeare and Iamic Pentameter. There's a lot of technical work you would have to do on the script. And, um, and you know, it's been, a, it's been a second since I've done Shakespeare. So I would need to really brush up my, my instrument. But I do think that I could... <laughs> get into shape for that for that part sooner than or or quicker than than usual just because of the passion behind it um and when i when i'm really passionate about something it 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 becomes my everything so um not tomorrow but but soon yeah um do you would you say that you are drawn to playing antagonists yeah i I would (laughs) well Okay, so there's something about there's something to be said about what you look like, yeah. correct? So I have uh, dark features. I have you know sort of protruding features on my face that angle down, and I don't know. They it it, it does come across a little sinister, and I I can now at 32 years old embrace that. Whereas when I was younger, and my feedback would be things like he's untrustworthy. <laughs> Um, that rubs me the wrong way, of course. But um, you have to understand, most of the characters um, that you're going to audition for in your teens and 20s are innocents. You know, they're fresh-faced, doe-eyed deers, blank slates, new to the world, and they're sort of the, the protagonist that, you know, life is happening to. Whereas I don't really relate to those. You know, I walk in the room and they don't, they, they see me as a cynic already. You know, they're like, this person looks a little jaded and, or they've experienced some things. So I think my thirties, which I'm now happily in, um, will be a better testament of the, of the sort of roles that I should play because I'm now finally being able to play villains and, 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 you know, a little bit more, was Complexity. that ever an annoying in your in your early to mid twenties that you like just didn't fit it for other people? Yes, it was very much. I just felt like I would be. It, it would. I'm not going to say any names, but a lot of the peers that that I was that I that I would be up against in these auditions with like very safe or pretty boy faces, or, you know, stuff that I was like, well, if I only looked like that. Or if I only was a was a tenor, or if I only had a softer looking face, or if I only did the, you know, I would always compare, and you know, it wasn't productive, it wasn't helpful, and and I I sort of learned through time to own who I am and and to love the the darkness that I exude, or 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 the um I don't know that 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 secret behind my eyes, if if you want to look at it that way. And I do, because it's important to me to spin it right. to a positive. Um, 
any any limitation that you have, you need to spin it in a way that that behooves you. What would your advice be for people who either ex- are experiencing the same things that you've experienced, or like the flip side where they are uh, are looking to play uh, villains but have uh, kind of the opposite look than people are looking for? You know, this career, this life, if you sign up for it, is all about, it's an incredible challenge in, in patience on a daily, weekly, just recurring basis. Um, patience as doors slam in your face. Patience as you hear the no more than any other word. Patience as you wait for your time. And sometimes people have their time like very immediately and very young. And perhaps it even like snowballs into more and more and more and more work, but getting more work. And you're like, man, that person is never going to be unlucky. That person is set for life. And that's just not true for anyone, um, whether or not things are happening behind closed doors personally or, or, or whatever. Everyone has struggles and challenges in this life, no matter how successful they appear on the outside. And you know, a lot of people who get a lot of early success struggle later and vice versa. A lot of people who are really successful are like bankrupt yeah. and you don't know that. You know, like there's always things that people are dealing with that you don't know and everyone's going to have their struggle. And if you're in this career for the right reasons and you really can't see yourself doing anything else and you're committed to this life, then you will wait for it to work for you. And you will keep persisting and you will be patient through all of the ebb and flow of the life. And it's not easy. It's, it's not easy when you've been doing it for decades. It's, it's not an easy life. But if, if it's your life, yeah. it's your life. So you originated the role of Plankton in SpongeBob SquarePants on Broadway. What was it like playing a cartoon character on stage? That was a joy. Um, of course, it's a little intimidating as it's like a very, very, very iconic cartoon. And this character has been, you know, iconicized and it's a global property. I mean, SpongeBob is one of the most popular animated yeah. properties in the world. Um, so there's an incredible amount of pressure, of course, to, to get it right. Um, but also knowing that that doesn't exist the whole idea of getting it right and that there is no sort of right and wrong when it comes to subjective art. And, you know, I came into the first day of rehearsal with what I thought was a, was a sort of perfect impression of the voice actor, Doug Lawrence doing Plankton and my director, Tina Landau saying to me, we're not going to be doing impersonations. Um, So you need to bring a lot more Wesley to this character. And sort of finding that balance um, that would pay homage to the cartoon and make sure I pleased the fans, but also where I could be organic and authentic to myself and bring some heart and and truth to the character. So it was a challenge for sure, but it was a joy. And um, yeah, I, I, SpongeBob was one of the 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 most satisfying jobs I've ever had in New York. Amazing. Okay. If you could go back and tell your younger self something at any age, what would it be? And well, what age would it be? And what would you tell it? <laughs> I'm pretty mad at myself for, for, for quitting the piano. Uh, I'd probably tell, I'd go back to 11 year old Wes and say, stop. 
Uh, I mean, uh, don't stop, like, keep playing, because I was playing, you know, Bach at age 11, you know, I was really good, and I, I, now I can't play anything, and I don't remember how to, you know, it, I, you know, like, now I play, if I look at a piece of sheet music, it would take me a week to learn two pages of it, you know, whereas before I could almost just sight read, and so I'm pretty upset with myself, because my my parents were pretty strict about us playing every day. And then one day they were like, you know, we don't want to be these, these parents anymore. You can quit if you want. <laughs> I totally took them up on it instead of continuing with that. So that's one thing. Um, I don't know. I'd also probably tell myself to lighten up and stop being so serious about everything. Cause I was very serious about being an actor <laughs> and I, uh, you know, but at the same time, I, I, I don't know if that's true because that seriousness really did reflect, um, in terms of work, work ethic, and and the discipline I had to, to get to where I am, so okay, never mind. I take that back. Um, <laughs> how have you maintained your creative spirit after ten years or so on Broadway, TV, and producing your own shows? Or how do you keep things fresh for yourself? Well, that's interesting because uh, you know it's I think a huge challenge of doing theater in in contrast to TV and film is that theater you know, can get repetitive and, and monotonous if you let it, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're lucky enough to be in a show that is successful and that runs for a very long time, 400 performances later, it can be hard to believe in your given circumstances. Um, or it can be hard not to, I don't know, um, let your mind wander on stage. If you've said the same thing 400 times, you may find yourself doing your grocery list on stage, which is a terrifying feeling for the actor that suddenly you're not present. You're not in the moment. You're, you're doing bad work at that, at that time. Um, and it's sort of terrifying that, that your muscle memory is, is doing the work. Um, and in that situation, I would, I would advise to myself and others, um, if they find themselves in this situation to, 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 focus on your scene partner to, to reconnect, look into their eyeballs and sort of reinvest to what you want. Um, and, and what you're going after the intentions, the, the action, the verbs of, of, of what you're doing. And, um, and then also, you know, just technically outside of, of whatever I'm investing in, in the scene or whatnot. I also try to extracurricularly do web content and, and create things and write plays. And so I can keep my brain active and never feeling sort of dull or uninspired when I'm in a long run of a show or or something. Well, that is uh, a darn good answer. Um, Well, Wesley Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join me today. Thank you, Anna. And that is it for this episode of Spike Tape and our first ever mini season. Our episode today was produced and edited by me with music by Lila Fritz. And a huge thanks to Wesley Taylor for being such an amazing guest. You can follow him at Sir West Tate on Instagram and at West Tate on Twitter. This was the final episode in our mini season, so please look out for our first full season coming at you in September. You can check us out at spike.tape on Instagram or at spiketape.net where you can find all of our previous episodes. Please feel free to reach out with any ideas for who we should talk to next, and we'll see you in the fall. I'm Anna Brasowski. Until next season, with more from Spike Tape.